Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Remember to check out the website, dormroomhistory.com slash the history of China, to see more about this episode and the past ones. The site can connect you with my social media, our comment sections, because I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on everything, and also to the donate page. Five classes, two jobs, and the podcast with the best fans in the world, well, safe to say my life is pretty good. But last week, we saw the Qin eliminate the last states that were by themselves even remotely capable of standing up to the Qin. Though, yeah, my Hawkeye listeners out there will probably point out, and rightfully so, that the Qi for their part more or less eliminated themselves through their own utterly shambolic leadership. Through nook or by crook, the Qin had ended any real competition. That is, unless all the states unite. Which, of course, they don't. And the Qin had also ended the Zhou dynasty. So all that was left for the Qin to do was to put the dagger in each state. Though still no easy task. Currently, though, the Qin just coronated a 13-year-old. Look, he would have been just old enough to get Instagram and be in, what, 7th grade? But now he led the most powerful and ruthless state ancient China had seen to this point. Imagine yourself at 13 in that position even at all. And I'll speak for myself when I say I would essentially topple the state by accident in like 5 minutes. This 13-year-old, though, was named King Zheng of Qin. But he died as Qin Shi Huangdi. So without further ado, The History of China, Episode 21, Qin Shi Huangdi. We have gotten to one of the most globally recognized figures in Chinese history. I'm going to be honest with all of you. I really didn't know how to go about telling this story. When I started this show, I thought I would be here at this point in like six episodes or less, and it would all be a breeze through. But obviously, we are hours upon hours of content past that, and we have dived headfirst to understand all the context and history that got us to this point. The Chin are at the shores of total conquest right now. And on top of that, they are led by Qin Shi Huangdi. Now, I'm about to spoil some things, but I think this will get everyone even more excited for what's about to come. For those that may be new to Chinese history, even if you haven't heard of Qin Shi Huangdi, you've probably heard one or two or all three of these following things to some degree. One the Terracotta Warriors. While those, while those were built for Qin Shi Huangdi's tomb. Two, the Great Wall. Like, the Great Wall of China. Well, that's begun by Qin Shi Huangdi. And three, Qin Shi Huangdi is credited with unifying all of China, ending the Warring States period, and ushering in the first imperial dynasty of China. 
the Qin Dynasty. Now, I'll admit, I didn't mean to initially spend so much time during the Warring States period. However, I'm really glad we did. We have seen what a virtually insurmountable task ending it would have been. We have seen some of the literally, I mean, greatest thinkers in all history. The best generals, leading armies that by and large dwarfed anything Earth had seen to that point. Oh, and it's all with the best technology. Because yeah, they had crossbows before the Romans even got to Judea. And this is all in a zero-sum game of philosophical and societal risk. So look, before we continue any further here, I am not trying to knock Qin Shi Huangdi down any pegs here. But we now have the context and knowledge of how literally hundreds of years of policy, luck, philosophy, and war from endless directions has gotten us to this point where he can even do what he's about to do. Nevertheless, here we go. In 246 BC, young 13-year-old King Zheng is crowned. Though he isn't handed the whole state just like that. We saw this in some episodes a while back, and that's that kids who are crowned aren't usually handed total authority right away. Because obviously handing over power to a child is a terrible, terrible idea. That doesn't mean the kid is not still king. It just means that there is a regency that essentially holds the ship down until the young king becomes of an appropriate age to rule. Which is still like 18 or 20, but nevertheless. So for nine years, from 246 to 235 BC, a man named Liu Bu Wei held the temporary power. But what would ancient history be without some salacious accusations? So I told you that King Zheng, the young king, was the son of the last king, King Zhuangxing. That's how it works. Now the son inherits the throne. But the ancient chroniclers like Sima Qian state that guess what? King Zheng is an illegitimate son. Heck, some ancient chronicles even say he is wholesale not related to royal blood at all. Because they believe a concubine already impregnated by Lu Bu Wei himself, a merchant and now the regent, gave birth to King Zheng. So they're saying he's actually, by some weird coincidence, the son of the now regent. But remember, history is a weapon. And while this belief that there is some sort of illegitimacy with Qing Shi Huangdi stayed in the Chinese histories and psyche for a while, modern historians have thrown cold water on this gossip. Look, guys, I won't always just go along with everything the ancient chroniclers say. Because sometimes, and I mean sometimes, modern evidence can disprove the words of someone who wrote hundreds of years after the fact. It is believed by tons of modern Chinese historians that the story of Qin Shi Huangdi in some way being illegitimate, or even worse, the son of a merchant, which I'll add was a really bad look because in later Confucian society, merchants were the lowest on the social totem pole. So for Eric Andreessen's The History of China, 
King Jung is legitimate. Are we even surprised, though, that historians from later dynasties that are diametrically opposed to everything the Qin stood for threw in some salacious details like that? No. We're probably not. So now with the knowledge that this is probably not true, as in King Zheng was not the legitimate son of Liu Bu Wei, the Han Dynasty era story by Sima Qin goes as follows. Every day that passed meant King Zheng was growing from a simple child into a full-functioning adult. But what can full-functioning adults do better than kids? Well, virtually everything. Well, though, they are better at finding out facts about their own life. So Liu Bu Wei became to get increasingly nervous that King Zheng would find out the truth. And, well, see to it that the loose ends, like Liu Bu Wei himself, were buried. Well, cut in half, or drawn and quartered, or beheaded, then buried. So again, according to the Han Dynasty historians, Lu Bu Wei realized that the best thing he could do, you know, to get away from this controversy, was to probably distance himself from the Queen Dowager herself. So he grabbed a man named Lao Ai, and had this Lao Ai character disguised as a eunuch, and then paired this fake eunuch with the Queen Dowager. I mean, unreal plan. If King Jung ever grows suspicious, Lu Bu Wei could just sit back and say, What are you saying? I never hang out with your mom, and the only one she does hang out with is a eunuch, so, well, no chance she could have gotten pregnant, because, like, he's a eunuch. But salacious ancient gossip knows no ends. It is chronicled that this fake eunuch blew the plan up because he and the Queen Dowager ended up getting along really well. Like, they had two kids really well. Then, in 238 BC, before King Jung was officially given the powers of king, Lao Ai, the fake eunuch, got hammered. Now, that's the start to pretty much every great story, but so Lao Ai is sauced, Lao Ai began to brag that he was the king's stepfather. You know, King Jung's stepfather. That's a big thing to say, and probably something he should keep to himself. One, because it's pretty much not true, and two, it essentially just ruins Lu Bu Wei's plan. But in 238 BC, this plan is falling apart as we just saw. But it's about to hit the fan. Because in that same year, while the young king, and I guess you could call him a king in waiting, though while he is traveling, Lao Ai grabbed the queen's official seal and mobilized an army to overthrow the child king. Safe to say the plan of having a fake eunuch really backfired. Luckily, though, Liu Bu Wei and the others got on top of this fast. They crushed the rebels, but Lao Ai himself, the fake eunuch, got away. The gig was up, though, and Lao Ai had a one million copper coin bounty put out for him alive. So in the meantime, all remaining supporters of his were killed, and then somebody along the way gave up his location, and Lao Ai was captured. Look. 
the Chin are always brutal. So, while we shouldn't be surprised that he was subsequently torn into five pieces, yes, five, by five carriages. The two secret kids were also killed brutally, and the queen at this point had been such a headache that she was essentially put under house arrest the rest of her life. The Chin are brutal, but come on, they're not barbarians. They're not just going to kill the queen. But Lu Bu Wei, well, he had seen enough of this world. And he realized his only way out of this mess was to take himself out of it under his own free will. So realizing that every plan he had has backfired and he could potentially end up getting killed in the near future, he decided to drink poison and killed himself. But in 235 BC, the drama was put down for good because King Zheng assumed the full powers of king. Now, the only question that remained was when would the Qin, under King Zheng, make their coup de grace? King Zheng had been planning it. Now, while he was still a child king with no power during that time, Lu Bu Wei and the Qin were not just sitting around doing nothing. They weren't just waiting until the king came of age. Because in 236 BC, while the Zhao state was making an invasion of the Yan state, for some reason, the Qin used the opportunity there to send two separate armies into Zhao and invaded them. And they ended up taking a sizable chunk out of the Zhao. By 232, though, the Qin, now under King Zheng, went for the hammer blow against the Zhao. But the Qin were subsequently and shockingly defeated. Not entirely, they just lost a battle but it was a Puric victory for the Zhao state. They had sustained absurdly high casualties, all to just delay the inevitable. So the Zhao state fell back to the capital at Handan and braced for impact. So the Zhao were holed up in their capital. So the Qin just turned around and said, fine, and took out the Han state, who at this point, let's be real, were the weakest state around. By 2.30, the Qin had marched in, taken the capital of the Han, and the king of the Han just gave up and surrendered the whole state to the Qin. One state down, five to go. While the Zhao readied their Alamo moment, they were struck by seemingly acts of God. From 2.32 to 2.30 BC, the Zhao state, while they were preparing for their, you know, Alamo moment, were struck with a severe famine and a massive earthquake. So by early 229 BC, the Qin showed up ready to take care of this Zhao state once and for all. Yeah, they had a huge advantage now because the Zhao had virtually no food and had suffered incredible structural damage from the earthquake. But again, the Zhao had constructed huge defensive measures. But in the next year, the Zhao, somehow holding out through all of this, began to suffer some internal squabbles between ministers and the king and other people in the court, and the Qin used this as a clear chance to cripple the Zhao armies just beyond the capital. 
Not more than seven months later, in 228 BC, the Qin were able to easily take over the Zhao capital at Handan and captured the Zhao king. The Zhao were also now officially done. Two states down, four to go. The Qin didn't dwell on this victory too long, though, because they immediately turned the force that beat the Zhao and pointed them against the Yan. The Yan realized their day of reckoning was here, and quickly began to float the idea of a huge alliance that some say even included the Xiongnu, but my my, it was a little too late for an alliance. So the Yan decided to try and pull a fast one to save themselves. Because they sent an assassin disguised as an envoy. Now this Yan state assassin actually got access to King Zheng in his palace. And to raise the stakes, none of King Zheng's guards were allowed to carry weapons. So the dagger that they were going to use to kill him was rolled in a map. And the map was the gift that gave the envoy a pretense to even be there. But as the assassin pulled the map out, King Jung saw the knife and stumbled back. But he struggled to pull his own sword out. The Yan state assassin had a free shot and lunged. And all of China's history flashed right before our eyes. But the assassin missed. King Zheng, soon to be Qin Shi Huangdi, finally freed his sword and cut the assassin's leg. The assassin then, with a last-ditch effort, threw the dagger at Qin Shi Huangdi, but again, he missed. King Zheng then subsequently cut him down. But okay, this is going to be a quick side story here. Year not really known, but this is still directly related to what we just covered with that assassin. So that Yan state assassin had failed, and his name was Jin Ke. Now, a man named Gao Jian Li heard that his friend, Jin Ke, had indeed been cut down. So he swore to avenge his friend's death. Now, this is just an utterly fascinating story. But so this Gao Jin Li character, this friend of the now dead failed assassin, was a gifted loot player. And for some reason, in a twist of history, he was so gifted that Qin Shi Huang Di invited him to play for him at the palace. Upon arrival, he played and was wonderful. But quickly, someone realized who this guy indeed was. I mean, I guess Gao Jian Li was, well, not that quiet about his hatred for Qin Shi Huang Di. His playing was so good, however, that Qin Shi Huang Di, or as we know him at our current point, King Zheng, well, he was so moved by the playing that he couldn't bring himself to kill such a beautiful player. So he did the next best thing. He instead had his eyes gouged out. But wait, there's more. Qin Shi Huangdi allowed this guy to play again for him. 
Blinded now, yeah, but Gao Jianli was that good that he was still invited back. But Gao Jianli, even with his eyes gouged out, still had some tricks up his sleeve. And he had put a heavy piece of lead in his loot. So when he took out his loot, it was now a blunt weapon. And before he was done playing, he swung it at Qin Shi Huang Di. Again, like his friend, he missed. Look, the Qin were a one-strike-and-you're-out kind of policy state. So with a second strike, well, it's, yeah, not surprising that Gao Jianli was then finally executed. What a fascinating story. Regardless, though, King Zheng used that first assassination attempt as a just bellum to immediately besiege the Yan. The King of the Yan had one last card to play, though because he technically was not the one who had ordered the first assassination. So he grabbed the man who had ordered it, his own son, and then beheaded him, then sent his son's head to the chin to essentially apologize. The chin got the head of this guy's son and pretty much accepted the apology and turned their armies back and proceeded to not attack the Yan state for the next three years. But now it's time for a montage. In 225 BC, instead of attacking the Yan, the Qin went to the Wei state and crushed them. Two years later, in 223 BC, the Qin invaded the Chu state. And now the Chu were massive land-wise, but the Qin had already taken out a lot of their legs in the last episode, and they made short work of the Chu state. Then the next year, in 222 BC, the Qin finally had enough of the apology, went to the Yan state, conquered them, or what was left of them, and then conquered the Dai state. Then in 221 BC, there was only one left in the game, the Qi state. But as we know, the Qi were not exactly what they used to be. The Qin were fielding armies that were, I mean, incomprehensibly large compared to everybody else at this day and age. And not only in China, but in the whole world. And the Qin, as we know, have been doing really well when it comes to military strategy. So it's no surprise that in that same year, 221 BC, the Qi state surrendered to the Qin. In 221 BC, the warring states were over. And in its place was the Qin dynasty. No longer was it led by King Zheng. No. Because he was now Qin Shi Huang Di, the first emperor of China. Now I told you all in the first episode to remember the name of the Yellow Emperor who was the first mythological sort of emperor of Chinese history. His name was Huangdi. And in the year 221 BC arrives Qin Shi Huangdi, the Qin's yellow emperor. So China is finally unified, and Qin Shi Huangdi obviously deserves a lot of credit. But we have spent literally 
hours talking about every move, every battle, all the things that had to go right in a certain direction for this to even be possible for Qin Shi Huangdi to do. Unifying China was not as simple as beating everybody like this in, in, what, nine years? No. This took hundreds of years of the greatest thinkers, the brightest philosophical minds, the best generals, and a lot and lot of war. So, next week, the Qin Dynasty. And before I let you go, remember to follow the show and leave it reviews and to check out the website. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next week on the History of China. <laughs>